You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. The American writer, activist and critic Mary McCarthy, perhaps best known for her novel The Group... Uh, which portraying the lives of eight college friends through their experiences of love, marriage, and art. Um, the novel's groundbreaking treatment of gender and sexual liberation received a great deal of attention when it was first, pub- first published in 1959. And it, it is currently experiencing a revival, and it will actually be relaunched in a new Norwegian translation by Hilda Röd Larsen later this summer at Oskar Publishing. Uh, my name is Lin Rottem, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. And I am pleased to welcome uh, you to this evening's event, which is a part of our lecture series, Literary Guiding Stars, where authors are invited to talk about a writer they greatly admire. And one of the authors that have been uh, inspired by McCarthy is the American writer, editor, filmmaker, and cultural critic Chris Krauss, who am, I am extremely pleased to welcome back to the House of Literature for the second time. Um, Chris Krauss has written a number of genre-bending essays, um, biographies, and novels, including After Katie Acker, Aliens, and Anorexia, and the cult novel I Love Dick, translated into Norwegian by Knut Ufsta in 2017, 20 years after the first publication. So like McCarthy, Krauss' mix of autobiography and fiction divided critics initially uh, before it became a feminist classic like I Love Dick. And like Krauss, McCarthy approaches issues of sexuality, identity, gender, relationships, and love, told with both humor, intelligence, and vulnerability. So please give a warm welcome to Chris Krauss. Thank you so much, Lynn. Um, Yeah, Mary McCarthy, I have thought about her for years. Um, I think I intensely discovered her um, in the early 2000s when some of her work was republished and couldn't believe that I didn't know about it before then. And, um, and then over the years, she just kept popping up. I mean, no matter what I happened to be working on, it seemed like she'd gotten there first. I remember when I was working on my third novel, Torpor, um, which was kind of a book of your 30s, I read and reread her novel, A Charmed Life. Um, and then there was Birds of America. I mean, she's, yeah, I've, in a way, her book, The Company She Keeps, is like the I Love Dick book. She also, I guess, like any writer who writes a lot from the material of their own life or experience, um, her novels fall sort of into periods of life, into eras of life. And 
um, her first novel, The Company She Keeps, is the classic book of one's 20s, just as A Charmed Life is a book of one's 30s and Birds of America is a book of one's 40s. Um, so anyway, it was like fantastic to get this invitation from Lynn to actually give a more formal talk about her. And I went back and I looked at a lot of the work again. Um, so, yeah. Um, I found this quote in an interview that she did with her friend uh, Doris Grumbach. And they're talking about satire. The best satire seems to spring from hatred and repugnance. Swift, juvenile, martial pope. Satire, Mary McCarthy says, I suspect, is usually written by powerless people. It is an act of revenge. Um, I've always loved Mary McCarthy. She fit the very tiny, exacting, exclusive mold of the 20th century public female intellectual. But unlike her approximate peers, Susan Sontag or Simone de Beauvoir, she was a novelist first, and her novels were ones that I wanted to read. That is, she wasn't primarily a scholar or a critic. She was a writer. McCarthy's critical writing on literature is self-serving in the best possible way. That is, she reads like a writer, combing through literature of the past to validate her own inclinations and in work. She was a satirist, and also because she was a woman, she was often accused of shrillness and hardness and unlikability. She failed to be vulnerable enough in her work. People say this about women who write comedy still. So in essays like Ideas in Literature, she looked to Flaubert, Charles Dickens, George Eliot, Jane Austen as writers whose novels like hers were grounded in fact. As different as these writers are, McCarthy says, they have one thing in common, a deep love of fact. Moving closer in, she says, the novel in its early stages almost always purports to be true. And then quoting Tolstoy, the hero of my story is the truth. McCarthy was a warrior for truth, often at great personal cost. People loved her or hated her, and they hated her in the most passionate, articulate ways. Tidings from the whore, the writer Delmore Schwartz proclaimed whenever he opened the Partisan Review and found one of her essays or stories. Another friend, Howard Kaplan, recalled a conversation with Saul Bellow about her second novel, Oasis, a satirical work in which the entire editorial cohort of the Partisan Review, that was a left-wing monthly magazine that was very famous in its time in um, post-war United States, um, they all repaired to the countryside to start a communal farm. Quote, Saul Bellow and I spent half the night talking about Mary McCarthy's alleged story. Perhaps there's something of an outraged masculine reaction involved, but we believe this thing to be so vile, so perfect an example of everything that is nasty in New York and everything that is sterile in recent American writing that we came to the conclusion that something should be done about it. Nasty women indeed. One of the main characters in Oasis, the, the ideological purist Will Taub, was based on one of McCarthy's former boyfriends, the Partisan Review founder Philip Rauch. Oasis may not be her best novel, 
but we published recently in 2013. It gives us an accurate view of the atmosphere and stakes among Stalinist-era Ivy League leftists in New York. The disillusion that McCarthy and her friends felt when they learned about the Moscow show trials is of a completely different order than the devastation Doris Lessing describes when the same news reached the British Communist Party. Viewed from the distance of almost a century, the partisan review's incestuous social world, equally fraught by ideological feuds and relationship drama, seems almost quaint, a joke which was exactly McCarthy's point. Oasis depicts a kind of benign animal farm where amiable, nature-loving Trotskyites are in charge. McCarthy was highly aware of the difference between tragedy and farce. And to her, for better or worse, the American left of her times was a farce. Throughout her lifetime, Mary McCarthy's work was deeply polarizing. People loved it or hated it, and it still is. Writing in the New York Times in 2000, years after her death, Larissa McFarquhar described her as, quote, a viperously clever but minor writer, much admired, much detested. And yet her work was incredibly important to a generation of second-wave feminist thinkers and writers and generations beyond. Her first novel, The Company She Keeps, was republished in 2003, it's a collection of linked stories about an ambitious, intelligent young woman's life in New York. It was published in 1942, but McCarthy's protagonist, Margaret Sargent, is a close cousin to Lena Dinaman Girls, Dunaman Girls, Kathy Acker in Black Tarantula, Sheila Hetty in How Should a Person Be? Describing her lovers and friends in the most intimate detail, Company is a novel a clef with a very large key. Everyone in McCarthy's extended New York circle of friends knew exactly who she was talking about. But these weren't tales of revenge. The joke was mostly on Margaret herself. I didn't know about Company when I wrote I Love Dick in 1997. And when I discovered it later in 2003, I couldn't believe this incredible resource had been withheld from me. It was all there. Claiming the freedom to speak about one's experience, even when inevitably others are involved. The imperfectibility of the narrator. A comic narrative whose point isn't confession or moral progress, but simply exposing the social disease and real psychic pain that people experience every day. A novel that tells the truth. And isn't that what people look for in literature? I taught it in classes, bought copies for friends. Writing in 2013, the writer and activist Vivian Gornick describes what a, what a revelation company was for her generation coming of age in the 1950s. We read, she reports, two writers, Colette and Mary McCarthy, as others read the Bible, to learn better who we were and how, given the constraint of our condition, we were to live. Their novels and stories, collectively speaking, constituted our book of wisdom. Garnett continues, the thing we prized most in McCarthy was the no-holds-barred honesty with which she nailed the situation. Who among us could not identify with Margaret Sargent, bold as brass when she meets the man in the Brooks Brothers shirt on a train, and then next morning as crawling around on his sleeping car floor, 
trying desperately to find her second stocking before he wakes up and forces her to face the humiliating complications of casual sex. The scene was so real that me and my friends could only feel redeemed by its remarkable verisimilitude and then by the scary brilliance of its prose, edged not in sentiment or social realism, but in glittering irony. Gernick is right. Mary McCarthy's prose style is devastating. She's able to pin people down like insect specimens, summoning their essences with a single withering phrase. For example, in chapter six of the group, Noreen Schmidtlop, the trust fund Marxist who's sleeping with Kay's husband, has golden brown eyes that were, quote, habitually narrowed, and her handsome, blousy face had a plethoric look, as though darkened by clots of thought. Or in the company she keeps, Margaret Sargent observes the tastefully dressed man on the overnight train she'll soon sleep with, and decides that he, quote, looked like a middle-aged baby, like a young pig, like something in a seed catalog. As her lifelong friend, the radical writer and editor Dwight MacDonald remarked in terror, when most pretty girls smile at you, you feel terrific. When Mary smiles at you, you look to see if your fly is open. <laughs> McCarthy is cruel to her subjects, but she's never as cruel to them as she is to herself and she's present at all times in her fiction. She once replied to the tiresome question asked only of women about how closely her novels hewed to real life. What I really do is take plums, real plums, and put them in an imaginary cake. As she once wrote about Flaubert, quote, like all novelists, he drew on his own experience, and more than most novelists, he was frightened by the need to invent. Of course, McCarthy was really talking about herself, although she could have been talking about Doris Lessing, Kathy Acker, Chester Himes, Sheila Hetty, Tony Duver, Hubert Guibert, Eileen Miles, Maggie Nelson, Elizabeth Hardwick, Jamaica Kincaid, Marguerite Girard, or really anyone else, and I'd like to include myself here, who writes literary fiction. Why was she such a cool, dispassionate observer, so passionately inclined to tell the truth? It could be because she was an interloper in New York's highly pedigreed mid-century world. Orphaned as a small child, she was sent to live with casually cruel and dreary relatives in a lower middle-class suburb of Minneapolis. She was punished for excelling, and her life might have taken a very different turn were she not rescued by her maternal grandparents in Seattle, a successful attorney and his wife, who encouraged her and paid for private schools. From there, she went to Vassar, where she studied everything from Tacitus to what people ideally served at dinner as a first course. McCarthy studied constantly throughout her life. Adopted by the elite tower group in the Vassar dorms, she wanted desperately to pass, and she studied their behavior avidly, a study that she'd put to further use much later when she wrote the group. As an outsider who'd found a way inside, I imagine she was acutely aware of manners, mores, customs, and the disconnect between the ways people feel and the way they act. As a narrator, she was unsparingly truthful about her own ambitions and pretensions, ambivalence and confusion. Margaret Sargent, her character and company, is a terrible person, manipulating both her lover 
and her soon to, her soon to be ex-husband into an excruciating three-way coffee meeting to discuss the situation over drinks. But then again, the situation was excruciating too. Clearly, McCarthy believed that the ruthlessness she used to scrutinize herself could equally be applied to everyone around her. She cast a cold eye, as she titled one of her later books. Did she go too far? Responding to a question about her contemporary Lillian Hellman on the Dick Cavett show in 1979, McCarthy quipped, every word she writes is a lie, including and and the. <laughs> it, was a, it was an opinion most of their contemporaries shared, although nobody dared to say it. And if I could just add here, what she was talking about in particular was this book, Pentimento, uh, that Talman published, that purported to be a memoir of her own experience in the resistance during the Second World War. But it was everything in it was completely false. I mean, the character that was supposed to be Talman's character, you know, was this great hero smuggling people and money outside of occupied Europe. But it was patently false. And so I guess, given the proximity of that history and people knowing people who had actually risked a great deal and lost everything for it, it was extremely offensive to see this false story three or four decades later being told and rewarded and celebrated and played by, who was it who played Julia in that movie? Was it Jane Fonda? Anyway. Um, Hammond's World War II memoir, Pentimento, had recent, recently been adapted as Julia, the Oscar-winning film, and she responded to McCarthy with a $2.5 million libel lawsuit, a suit, she later said, that she'd drop in exchange for an apology. But McCarthy, then 67 years old, happily married for the fourth and final time, financially comfortable but by no means rich, refused to back down. Only Hellman's death and the decision of her heirs to drop the suit spared McCarthy from financial ruin as she approached her 70s. The writer Elizabeth Hardwick, a lifelong friend and sometimes frenemy of McCarthy's, described her stubbornness in an essay written after McCarthy's death. Quote, if one would sometimes take the liberty of suggesting caution to her, advising prudence or mere practicality, she would look puzzled and answer, but it's the truth. McCarthy tried to take in all the details of her surroundings and produced work that serves as a document of its time. Reading her collected fiction, we may marvel at how much her cold eye saw, but we may also note the things that it missed. Well, I mean, okay, who doesn't miss something? But really, I think McCarthy's achievement was formidable. What she did see was amazing. I'm trying to remember when I first became aware of Mary McCarthy's work. She was a famous writer, famous like Jacqueline Suzanne. It was impossible not to have heard of her. Maybe I saw dog-eared copies of the group in Bantam paperback on the beach, or my mother's nightstand, or the parents' bedrooms of my friends. But I remember becoming positively aware of her as a writer when I discovered her translation of Simone Veil's beautiful essay, the Iliad or the Poem of Force. It was the mid-1980s, and I was working as a word processor and clerical worker in the interchurch building near Columbia University. The job was demeaning and boring, 
Months turned into years, and it seemed like it would go on forever. The center had a library in the basement of mostly religious books, but they had a copy of McCarthy's translation and essay about Viles' The Iliad or Pomophorus, published or self-published as a chapbook in 1945. It was one of an edition of 500, and in all those years it had only been checked out once or twice. I found this comforting and inspiring. At that time, I was working also part-time at the St. Mark's Poetry Project, and this was what poets did. They translated other poets who they counted as their progenitors and influences, and they published chapbooks of their own work and their friends' work that nobody would read except for other poets. And the fact that the glamorous Mary McCarthy, who was known by then as the first lady of American letters, would champion the work of this then obscure, badly-dressed, forgotten philosopher made her seem a lot cooler, or rather sincere in her identity as a writer in ways that you wouldn't expect, given her stature. And here I might also add, add, I didn't write this in the essay, but amazingly, she was also in the early 1960s a great passionate defender of the writing of William S. Burroughs. There was a conference that a lot of writers, um, both kind of uptown and downtown writers, attended in Glasgow. Um, I guess it was the Edinburgh, no, sorry, it was the Edinburgh Festival, or maybe it was Glasgow, whatever. It was a big conference, and she gave this incredibly eloquent speech and appreciation of William S. Burroughs' work, which at that time I think had been banned in the United States and was certain by, by no means taken seriously by anyone in the literary world whatsoever. I mean, he was strictly a kind of downtown, you know, beatnik um, writer, and, and she really recognized his achievement as a fellow writer, and she wrote about it beautifully, I mean, with no agenda, no possible return in mind from William Burroughs, and I always admired that. I mean, it's rare enough when writers champion the work of another writer, and it's even rarer still when there's not like a secret reward kind of hidden around the corner for them. <laughs> so... A few years later, I discovered her third novel, A Charmed Life, and I read it over and over again. By then, I was married and living in Springs outside of East Hampton, a location we chose because it was a lot less expensive by then than buying a Manhattan apartment. A Charmed Life is set among a group of writers and artists living in New Leeds, Massachusetts, for exactly that reason. All of her characters have one foot in New York, but either psychically or financially, they can't afford to live full-time there. Martha Sennett, McCarthy's protagonist, is a former actress who's reluctantly writing a play that she will never finish. Her husband wants her to advance her career, although all she really wants is to get pregnant. The novel is full of hilarious set pieces, scenes of provincial life among less than completely successful, self-exiled writers and intellectuals. Martha is torn between her current and her former husband, who arrives in New Leeds just as she's agonizing over whether to comply with her husband's desires or secretly get pregnant anyway. But before she can reach any decision, she dies in a car crash, which at the time seemed like the most perfect ending and solution. But it was McCarthy's 10th novel, The Group, that made her famous. It was banned in Australia. She received letters care of her publisher asking, 
What kind of filthy, perverted mind do you have to write such a novel? Even more damning among her old trust-funded friends from the New York Review of Books and the Partisan Review was that it was commercially successful. It was the book that ruined my life, she remarked many years later in a newspaper interview. The group is an episodic account of the lives of eight friends who, like McCarthy, graduated with the class of 1933 from the elite Vassar College. It was published 30 years later, in 1963. By then, the events of the book were historical, but the situations of these eight women, their conflicts and choices, felt completely contemporary. The novel is written in a Flaubertian, indirect freestyle. From chapter to chapter, McCarthy adopts the perspective of each of the girls, perfectly capturing the pitch of their voices, their hopes, their gestures and tics, as well as their prejudices. In the opening chapter, which is a kind of medley, the group gathers for the wedding of one of their number, Kay Strong, to Harold Peterson, the boy she'd been sleeping with throughout college. Harold, a hard drinker, is an aspiring playwright and sometimes stage manager. Five years older than Kay, he'd attended Reed College, a less elite West Coast institution. Kay, the daughter of a Midwestern doctor, is about to start work as a management trainee at the department's store Macy's. There are no family members, no older people, in fact, hardly any other guests at the wedding. The group are too dogmatically open-minded to be shocked by this situation, but they're not stupid. Clearly, the marriage is wrong. They valiantly try to dispel the cloud of unease with relentless chatter and babbling. As progressively educated, privileged young women coming of age at the start of the Great Depression, the girls in the group want to be everything their, their mothers were not, and they want to do everything differently. Passionate about social progress, they embark on careers in medicine, art history, social work, management, and publishing, but they're defined still more by their limits than by their ambitions. Nobody, McCarthy writes waspishly, behind the middle-brow middle mask of group speak, could afford to be standoffish nowadays. Lots of graduate architects, instead of joining a firm and building rich men's houses, had gone right into the factories to study industrial design. Look at Russell Wright, who everybody thought was quite the thing now. He was using all these industrial materials, like the wonderful new spun aluminum, to make all sorts of useful objects like cheese trays. Their ambition extends to cuisine. Quote, they were quite out of patience with the unimaginative roasts and chops mother served. They were going to try new combinations and foreign recipes and puffy omelets and souffles and interesting aspects. The worst fate, they utterly agreed, would be to become like mother and dad, stuffy and frightened. Not one of them, if she could help it, was going to marry a broker or a banker or a cold fish corporation lawyer, like so many of mother's generation. They would rather be wildly poor and live on salmon wiggle than be forced to marry one of those dull, purplish young men of their own set, with a seat on the exchange and bloodshot eyes, interested only in squash and cockfighting and drinking at the racket club with his cronies Yale or Princeton 29. It would be better, yes, they were not afraid to say it, though mother gently laughed, to marry a Jew if you loved him. 
end quote. The group was conceived as a kind of mock chronicle novel, McCarthy later explained in an interview. It's a novel about the idea of progress, really, the idea of progress seen in the feminine sphere. You know, home economics, architecture, domestic technology, contraception, child rearing, the study of technology in the home, in the playpen, in the bed. It's supposed to be the history of the loss of faith in progress, in the idea of progress during that period. And, you know, I just want to add maybe parenthetically that one of the kind of remarkable, remarkable and I think brilliant and most successful things about the group is that essentially it's a satire. If any literate and educa educated person, you know, reads the novel all these years later, we can see that it's a satire of these women's pretensions, but it's also so empathic with them. You know, she mocks them, but she doesn't hate them. I mean, she, I, I do think that she has a big heart, and she sees them all as much as victims of their own circumstances as fools, so that it was able, in 1963, people just read it like a trashy book. They read it just like, you know, the, the women in the group were considered to be like the same girls in Valley of the Dolls, in Jacqueline Suzanne. I mean, you could kind of empathize with the characters, even though you could read it through a completely different lens, and McCarthy was completely satirizing the characters on the setup, and the Western idea of progress and endless progress. So it's, it's really quite a book. Um, McCarthy was living in Paris by 1963, but she returned to the US to do promotional readings and interviews. On a brisk November Sunday, she took the stage at the 92nd Street Y in New York to thunderous applause. 51 years old, she was at the top of her game, wearing an elegant white dress and small jewelry. The night before, she'd fled a party at Dwight and Gloria MacDonald's apartment in tears at two in the morning because Fred Dupuis, a now completely unknown critic and scholar, told her how much he disliked the novel. He wasn't the first or the worst critic, but he was the first one to say it socially and directly. One thing that gave me the courage to go on with this book, she began after Dwight MacDonald's fond introduction, which was I was working was which I was working on since 1952, was reading the first chapter of it out loud here, and the audience liked it, and I took it up again after this reading I gave that night for good or ill. So uh, I'm assuming that uh, most people here have read this book, and I don't have to explain who the characters are or what happened before. Is that true? No. The audience laughs. Is somebody kidding? The book topped the Times bestseller list within weeks of its pub date, stayed there for months. Film rights had been sold, and everyone had an opinion about it. Her depiction of the aspirations and friendships of these eight foster girls, determined to make their lives as different as possible from those of their mothers, spoke powerfully to readers of the early 60s except for the mysterious Eleanor Eastlake, who escaped the US for Europe and a lesbian relationship. The girls stumble over the conflicting mores of their generation's sexual liberation, navigating the unbridled cruelty of their employers, husbands and boyfriends. Their failure is a foregone conclusion. Part of their minds are still in closet faster, debating the classics and ideals 
but at the same time they agonize over love affairs, lunch menus, and contraception. Just as she did in the company she keeps, McCarthy treats sex as a subject for comedy, and there's a lot of sex in this book. Never before had a mass-market readership been exposed to such an audacious American comedy of sexual manners, and even more shocking because the author was female. A few weeks before McCarthy's 92nd Street reading, she'd been attacked in the New York Review of Books, a publication that she had helped to co-found and that she frequently wrote for, by Norman Mailer. In a 4,000-word-long hyperbolic attack, Mailer depicted the group as, quote, a trivial lady writer's novel infused with, quote, a communal odor that's a cross between ma grief perfume and contraceptive jelly. Appointing himself the defender of masculinist proletarian literature, he is repelled by, quote, the profound materiality of women, given its full stop until the eggs benedict and the dress with the white fichu, the pessary and the whatnot, sit on the loan like, of the narrative like commas and periods. Mary McCarthy is a bit of a duncey fraud herself. Mailer's attack was an inside job arranged by their mutual friend Robert Lowell. The insult was made even harsher by the fact that Lowell's wife and McCarthy's good friend Elizabeth Hardwick had published a mean-spirited parody in the New York Review under a pseudonym a few weeks before that. And these were her friends. Even Dwight MacDonald, despite his affectionate introduction, privately wrote to a friend that McCarthy lacked the creative force to pull off the novel. Her singular emotional outburst after Dupuis' remark the night before came after withstanding months of attacks from among her closest friends. About 15 minutes into the 92nd Street Y reading, McCarthy paused to explain what her strategies were for writing the novel. She mentions her use of indirect free speech, the same device used by Flaubert and Madame Bovary, whose gift for harsh pathos she shares. McCarthy explains, quote, the voice of the author is heard, but very rarely, and quickly lost. All through the book, when a girl is thinking about her own life or telling her own story, the tone of the chapter is as if she were telling the story to a group of friends. Everything, she explains, in the girls' lives tends to be technologized, the breastfeeding and contraception problems, that is technologized and in some ways socialized and alienated in some way. Everything that happens to these girls is turned into a subject of group conversation. What I'm trying to do in this book is to make some kind of study of what it meant to be young, for one thing, and what it meant to be a young American trained in progressive ideas and trained to be a consumer. I hope that I made myself clear. I thought I made myself clear when I was writing it, but it appears that I didn't. And from there on, she relaxes. When she reaches the passage about the domestically slovenly staunch communist Noreen going to Bloomingdale's to buy black chiffon underwear to turn on her impotent husband, that should get his pecker up. She puts her hand on her hip and the audience roars. And thank you. That's what I've prepared. But I'm, you know, what, what kind of blows me away about engaging with Mary McCarthy's work, one of many things, is 
This incredibly stupid question. I mean, I guess I was suffering from it more the last time that I was here um, because I Love Dick had been republished, you know? And, um, you know, I Love Dick was the character was named Chris Krause. I didn't even bother to change the character's name to Margaret Sargent, right? So people were talking about it as a work of autofiction. And I guess other books like Sheila Hetty's How Should a Person Be, a number of other books by mostly younger women writers dealing with the facts of their lives had come out. And everyone was always asking this question in interviews. What do you think of autofiction? Are you writing autofiction? Well, I guess it was concurrent with Nausgaard too, right? You know, this whole idea of autofiction as being a thing apart from a regular novel. But, you know, I realized when I wrote the Acker biography, you know, Acker died in 90, 1997, and her most, she was active in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. And she was doing exactly that, and yet no one at that time was talking about Acker as a predecessor, and I didn't understand why not. And then you look back even further, and there's Mary McCarthy, and she's publishing this book in 1942, and she's doing exactly the same thing, and people are criticizing her for it, and then she's looking back and saying, well, look, Flaubert did this too. What is sentimental, what is sentimental education, sentimental education, if not an autofiction about himself and his friends in their 20s? So, I mean, you could also conclude that every novel on some level is a work of autofiction, unless it's a genre book that's, you know, completely invented characters. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.